Welcome to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. We hope and pray this message challenges and inspires you to live out God's truth in your life. Hey, we're in, we're in the invitation and it's the book of Acts and today we're in chapter 2. We started last week with the belief that this book, the fifth book in the New Testament, remember the first four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the guy who wrote the third one, Luke, is the author of this book, Acts. And it is the story, even though in your Bible it might say uh, the Acts of the Apostles, not, that's really not a very accurate perspective. It's really the Acts of the Spirit of God. Now we talked some last week, so let me just remind you because uh, like most churches, half of you weren't here last week and the group that was here isn't here today. So let me just say that when we hear about the Spirit of God in Scriptures, there's there's all kind of ways we go. I mean, seriously, you've got kind of the, you got the TV preacher that's, you know, selling prayer hankies for 20 bucks and you send him 50, he's going to pray for your mom to be healed. And that dude says, you know, that he's got a handle on the Holy Spirit and he and he alone has the ability to get more out of the Spirit. Let me just stop and say the Greek had a word for that. And, and you may want to jot this down because this will help you. And those of you that always want me to go deeper, so you may want to jot this one down. That's called stupid. Because you see, none of us have a key that unlock the Spirit of God more than any other person. Because it's truly about this. The Spirit of God in the Old Testament fell on people like great Bible heroes like Daniel or like Moses or like Abraham, like Joseph. We could go on and on. It, the Spirit of God in the Scriptures say fell on those people for an event, for a time. And in the New Testament, Jesus, as he, has, as he taught his apostles, as he teaches his disciples, Jesus then dies, was buried, rose again. And in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension to heaven, hundreds of people, history records, that he was around, he ate with, hung out with, taught, etc., etc., But in that time, what he did most was prepare the church, the newly formed church, the brand new church that would be based on him and him alone. He was able to convey to them that what's going to happen is when I leave and go back to heaven and sit beside Father, God, creator of the universe, when I sit next to him, I'm going to leave you the third part of the Trinity. Because remember, we have God the Father, creator of the world, God the Son, Jesus, Savior of the world, God the Holy Spirit, keeper of the world. Are you with me? So if you look at that and say, well, what do those parts do? Well, think of it this way. God judges, Jesus forgives, the Holy Spirit convicts. That only leaves one job for the church, and that is to love. All right? And so when you look at it that way, you begin to understand that the teaching of the Holy Spirit is not something that is an emotional experience. The teaching on the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, rather than falling on somebody for an event like the Spirit of God did in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, because Jesus has come, has died, has risen from the grave, and done that, that we might have forgiveness of our sins and eternity, then in what really happens is the Holy Spirit doesn't just fall on us, it lives and resides resides within us, okay? And so all this teaching on the Spirit is this picture in the book of Acts that says, I am going to do, Jesus says, I am going to do great things in you, through you, for you, and because of him. 
And so when you look at that teaching, when we understand what's going on in this teaching, we understand what this looks like. But in particular, this book is an invitation to you as a part of the church in 2016 to be a part of an ancient church that was there in the first century. You see, I just don't get that, Chuck. Well, I, I used to work for a mission agency and it, it, it claimed that one of its priorities was starting churches. And their goal was to start like 2,000 or so churches a year around North America. Now, if, if you have lived around Gwinnett County for very long, you know that there's a church on every corner. I mean, seriously, and even in our community here, there's a hipster church on every corner. I mean, I'm talking skinny jeans and cool music and lights and haze and very cool people on every corner except this one. I guess what I, when I see a lot, I think to myself, does the world really need more churches or does the world just simply need more Jesus? Because see, I would say if, if the world just needs more churches, then why is that so special? I mean, I can make a case for why the world needs more schools. Because it's clear what they do. It's, it's understandable what these principals do and what their staff does. I mean, you, you, they have a pretty measurable process where, you know, a child comes into kindergarten and, the, and the, when they're finished with that fifth grade, they head to middle school and then they have three years of the most awkward stage of their life. And then they leave from there and they go to Nathan School at North Gwinnett and they start sprouting and they get independent and they drive you crazy as a parent. You can't wait for them to be out of the house. And then they go to college and they're pretty sure that they're independent, but they're not because you're paying for everything. And then when they graduate from college, they're pretty sure the world owes them a six-digit figure, but there's no jobs to be had. So they move back in, which is not cool. But see, there's a progress that we get to see there. It's like, uh, it, it's like pressure washing. When I pressure wash, I can see where I've gone. But you see, the first century church, they could see where they had gone. They could see what, had, what was taking place. They understood the role. They knew what the process was. You see, the answer isn't more churches. The answer is more Jesus. Now, if the church wants to make Jesus the center of all it does, then yeah, we need more churches. But let me just stop and say the answer is not more of any type of church. The answer is more Jesus that is taught in the church. You see, because if we believe it's going to take something more than that, we said the book of Acts is irrelevant to us today. And I would say it's more relevant today than it's ever been. I would say that it is uniquely more important. I mean, in, in this series, The Invitation, sometimes I think we forget that Acts is not just a history of the first century church. Acts is an invitation for us to act and react like the first century church. It is not our job to try to be cool. It's not our job to be relevant. It's not our job to try to fill the building. It's not our job to be able to brag about what we do. It's not our job to brag about our partnerships with schools. It's not about all those things. It's not about getting written up in a paper for what we do. It's all about this one thing. And it's all about what the first century church was about. Jesus, period. Nothing more, nothing less. Maybe we need, need to return to that. You say, yeah, but Chuck, you know what? They had to have had it tough. They, they didn't have Sunday school. They didn't have a denomination. They didn't have Hector. They didn't have padded chairs. They didn't have air conditioning. My goodness, they didn't have hymnals and they didn't have praise courses. I mean, can you imagine doing church without a Chris Tomlin song? 
They didn't even have Francis Chan, for goodness sake. I mean, they didn't even have Andy Stanley. How could they have done this? Because they had one, one, one thing their eyes were on. This is what Jesus has called us to do, and this is what he's doing through us. You say, okay, okay Chuck, I get it, I get it. Well, listen to this. In a poll taken two years ago that included more than 500 evangelical churches in America and more than 20,000 members, 89% of those people said, the church's purpose is to take care of me and my family's needs. 11% of those people said the purpose of the church is to win the world to Christ. I know, right? I read the story, uh, I don't know, a few months ago about a guy by the name of Charles Paul Kahn. And he had come to Atlanta to set up a new business. And while here, he thought he'd start looking for a church home. And so this is back in the day of Yellow Pages, pre-internet, before, you know, it was invented by our former vice president. And so he came along a church that captured him, and the name really caught him. And the name of the church was the Church of God Grill, G-R-I-L-L, the Church of God Grill. He thought, now, okay, that, that sounds different. I'm just going to call and check it out. So it's on a Thursday afternoon. He calls over to the Church of God Grill and says, hey, how did you come by your name? Dude on the phone says, well, you know, when we first launched this church here in downtown Atlanta, one of the ways we funded the church plant startup was we... We cooked, and in, in a part of the church, we sold uh, fried chicken and homemade meals. And he said, before long, there were so many people that were there to buy our fried chicken and our meals, we just closed the church and made it all a restaurant. You say, how horrible. I, I, I would say we do the same thing. We just don't use fried chicken. We do the same thing when we talk about, well, we need a bigger building. Or we do the same thing when we say, well, we, we have to sing it this way. Or we, we, we do the same thing when it's, well, we need to teach it that way. Well, you ought to serve the Lord's Supper this way. Or you ought to partner in the community that way. Or you ought to spend your money on this. And at the end of the day, what can happen to us is we can replace chicken dinners with all kinds of things and say, well, you know, we don't really tell the world about Jesus anymore. We don't really show the world what Jesus is by caring for people in need anymore. We just do fried chicken. Or we just do fun stuff. Or, or we just do concerts. Or, or we just show up and get entertained. You say, well, Chuck, that would never happen here. Are, are you sure? I mean, are, are you sure that wouldn't happen here? You say, I, I think we flirt with it all the time and we get dangerously close to it. The closing verses of Acts chapter 2 describe the early church. But the church in the book of Acts was a great church because it had focus. It had great focus. The first church knew what it should be doing, and it ought to be doing that. Peter Drucker once said, the way to check up on your organization is ask, what do we do and how's business? And I think the church ought to stop and say, what do we do and how is business? Principles, one of the reasons we think you're a very big deal is for us to do what we think we ought to do, we desperately need you. We're in a relationship where you may not have asked for it, but this church would like to say, we need you. Because for us to have the impact we think we're supposed to have, we need what you do in our community. It is our job to follow your rules, and gratefully, you say thank you to us for doing that. And I just think that's a wonderful perspective. And so as a church, what's business? Well, here what we would say is business is this. Are you doing anything that would show people that you are a witness for Christ? 
Is there anything that you do that people would look at and say, now that right there, that must have been, that, that looks like a Christian. And sometimes, maybe most often, it's not what you say, but what you did, especially when what you did, you didn't know anybody watched you do it. So if you will, look in the 40th verse of Acts chapter 2. This first church knew what to do, and they knew who to do it with. And the scripture says, and with many other words, he bore witness. Now remember that word witness from last week? Think of it this way. The word literally means someone who has done something and what they did is the witness of what they believe. All right? Many others, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, encourage them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and then were added that day about 3,000 people. Now, after the 11 o'clock service today, we've got about 30 new members we'll introduce to you today. There'll be about 220 new members of this church this year. And there'll be about 115, 120 people that are baptized this year here at Sugar Hill Church. And all those things are wonderful. But those numbers don't mean anything. What matters is each of those people and each of those families. And that's why they're important. And the scripture says, at that point, about 3,000 people were added to the first church that day. I'd say that's a successful church plant, wouldn't you? In verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And listen to this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So day after day after day, the church was growing. And why was it growing? Well, if you look back, there's about four different things that this text is saying to us, I want to invite you in so that Sugar Hill Church could be more like this church that the Lord was adding to day after day after day. And so if you've got the Sugar Hill Church app open, you can follow in these teaching notes. You can follow them, take pictures of the screen so you can have them later on. But I believe there's four things that the scripture is inviting us today to do. And number one is where God's spirit is leading, there is always sound teaching. Where God's spirit is leading, there's going to always be sound teaching. And sound teaching can be summed up in two things. It doesn't ask you to be or do anything more than scripture says or any less than that. To do less than that would be non-biblical. To do more than that would be extra biblical. And the fact is what we need today is not extra or less. We need the Goldilocks of scripture that says it's just right. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's not too weird. It's not too bland. It's, it, it is the scripture. Nothing more, nothing less. The scripture saying they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. Now these new Christians in the direction of the Holy Spirit, they were hungry for God's word. They wanted it to be proclaimed, but they also wanted it to be explained. Folks ask me a lot. I said, Chuck, why don't you use a pulpit? And why don't you use three points where I could really follow? Because this brain doesn't work that way. I have tried, and when I try to preach, I am awful. But now when the scriptures are getting in my heart and they stir me up and they, they let me know where I could really become more like Christ, then, then the, what comes out is not something that's shouting at you, but it's something that ought to encourage you to proclaim the truth of the scripture and explain it in such a way that you can do something with it. You see, the backbone of a healthy Christian life 
is scripture being taught, it's teaching. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. That you don't just stay a person who says, yeah, I got Jesus, I know I'm going to heaven, but man, I'm good. But there's more to it than that, right? The following, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit is to follow Scripture. I mean, that's what it looks like. You know why we make a big deal about making sure your students, your kids, and you are pointed into a small group? Because this is where we get the best teaching. If you're a one-hour kind of person that comes to church and, you know, you get, a, you get a church fix, a little Hector and a little bit of the band and a little bit of me and a little bit, we're all good, right? No, because there's not enough there for you to grow up in because it requires sound teaching, and that's why we want you to be in a group. That's why we ask you that big brochure that you get today. Find that group, get into a group, make it convenient for you, and make sure you're in that. Because see, where God's Spirit leads, there's also meaningful relationships. Where God's Spirit is leading, there's meaningful relationships. When I got here five years ago, one of the first things I said to the staff was this, we ought to begin with a relationship, we ought to end with a relationship, and we ought to serve out of relationship. We ought to know each other. A people ought to know a pastor, and a pastor ought to know a people. A community ought to know a church, and a church ought to know a community. And when we serve and we live in meaningful relationship, good things follow. The scripture says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and and the fellowship. And so in that fellowship, two things really amazingly happened. Number one, they were sharing with one another. And number two, they were learning with one another. Now the sharing is where we get hung up. Because if we're not careful, we're going to see, think that this teaching is some kind of socialism Bernie Sanders model to the New Testament. That's not true at all. The fellowship that Scripture talks about is this. It is not that people sold what they had because they had to. It wasn't because wealthy people were forced to. It's not because somebody kept track of how much they had. It was because in their heart they were motivated to help people in need, period. Nothing more nothing less. So what does a meaningful relationship look like? When somebody that means a lot to you is in need, what do you do? Help them. And that's what this relationship looked like. They were experiencing true, meaningful relationship. In verse 44, it says, and all who believe were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They're not saying it was communal. They're not saying, hey, to come be a part of this church, sell everything you have. None of that is true. If anything, we know historically, most of these people kept their house. What they did is they gave as something was of need. But now watch this. They didn't give because they had to give 10% of their income. That is not what the New Testament teaches. They gave because they saw a need and it was sacrificial in their heart. And because of that, the Lord used it and blessed them. That's why you will never hear me teach and preach that even though the tithe is holy unto the Lord, 10% is not a max or a minimum in the New Testament. Sacrificial giving is the max and the minimum. So if you can give a dollar a week and that is highly sacrificial, I'm telling you, God's going to bless that. And if you can give $2,000 a week, but all you give is 500 and it's not sacrificial, then I'm just saying to you, keep your money. Because at the end of the day, it's not what you give. It's not even how you give. It is about your heart. Is it sacrificial to do the work of Christ? Does your heart reflect what God's already doing in your life? Now you say, well, Chuck, you just let me off the hook. No, I didn't, because what I just said was 10% might be your floor. 
I don't believe God's limited to a teaching in the Old Testament that says this and this alone. I believe everything he teaches in the New Testament, especially the sharing and fellowship, is about are we willing to give of ourselves because we have a sacrificial heart that's grateful for what Jesus has done. The fact that they had all things in common gives us this one perspective. If there's ever anything that is vitally important in the church today, and that is unity of purpose. And you see, that is why the unity of this church is so vitally important because together we will not just accomplish more, together we will be able to show the world, as scripture says, how we love one another. And how are we gonna know that? By how we talk of each other, how we speak of God. It's not a primitive communism. It's a sharing of the heart. I love you. I want to serve you. I want to bless you. It was a mutual generosity and sharing. This is what it looks like. And when the Lord's, when the spirit of God is reigning on a church, that's what it looks like. A little kid, Sunday school group leader asked her little 10-year-old class, they said, hey, they were doing a class on missions, and so the teacher was there, and he, he looked at these fifth grade boys, and he said, uh, would you give a million dollars to missions? Yeah, yeah. Well, would you, would you give $100,000 to missions? Yeah. I mean, you know little fifth grade boys, man, you know, I mean, unless your mom made them bathe that Saturday night, you know, they're just saying yeah to everything, right? Well, would you give $1,000 to missions? Yeah. Would you give $100? Yeah. Well, would you give $1? And all but one boy goes, yeah. And she looks at Bobby and says, Bobby, what's up? She, he, he said, well, I have a dollar. And his thinking, I, I don't want to give it up because I have it. It's easy to say what I ought to give when I don't have it, to give what I do have. I mean, come on, really? I think sometimes that's what it looks like. You see, what was really happening was that personal property was sold as anybody had a need. It wasn't a mandate. It wasn't, it wasn't a rule. It was a simple fact that look at what Jesus has done for you. And then how can you help but not be grateful? In Acts chapter 4, we can see that the selling of property was just purely voluntary. Where the spirit of God leads, God's people not only relate to God's word, they relate to each other in fellowship and in sharing. But also where God's spirit leads, there's powerful worship. Wherever the spirit of God leads, there's powerful worship. Now, now watch this, because we have taken the term worship and we have substituted it today with music. But you see, you can have a worshipful experience without music. But what we've done is we have treated music like that and that alone as worship, and that's not true. And so what's happened because we've substituted the word music into the word for worship, we have different preferences, just like what you listen to on the radio in your car. Some of you listen to 680 The Fan Sports Talk Radio. Some of you listen to 97.1 The River because you can't get over those classic hairband rock and roll songs. Can I get an amen? See, rednecks everywhere. Some of you are listening to 101.5 because you can't get enough of that, you know, country kick. Some of you are still listening to talk show radio that kind of talk about how to get rid of squirrels in the attic and stuff. Some of you have got XM and so you listen to those specialty channels like the 70s on 7. Some of you listen to hip hop. Some of you listen to hip hop and you have no idea what they said. But we all have a preference there, don't we? 
And we've turned worship into a preference and an experience rather than a personal outpouring of gratitude in awe of God. And at times what we've done is we've let the style of the music keep us from being able to worship. Let me stop and say this. I don't care what it is. If hymns keep you from worshiping, it's not the hymns fault. It's your fault. If a praise band keeps you from worshiping, it's not the band's fault. It's your fault. Because it's a matter of your heart. It's not about a matter of the style, it's about your heart. When we bring a heart that's willing and desirous to worship, we will worship regardless of what is sung. Now I get it, I have preferences too. But the fact is when we let a preference get between us and our worship, we have a real problem. When the spirit of God leads, there's going to be powerful worship. Well, what kind of powerful worship? There's preparation for it and then there's participation in it. A little while ago when you, were singing, when you were singing and Hector steps away from the microphone and I love when he does that and I stop singing when he does that because I like to hear you. And when you were singing, Lord, I need you, oh, I, I thought to myself, that, what a beautiful sound. This is God's people. This is old and this is young. This is black and this is white. This is fat and this is skinny. This is bald and this is hairy. We've all come together and we're saying, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. And I think to myself, that's the church. That's the church. But you know, last Sunday night, I sat in the back of the chapel listening to a hymn sing. And I listened to them sing. And I thought to myself, that's the church. That's the church. And I didn't think that one was better. And I didn't think that one was more worshipful. And I didn't think this was better. And I didn't think this was more worshipful. You know what I thought? As long as the focus of our heart and our voice and our mind is on him and him alone, then you sing whatever you want to sing. Because when you don't, we've let the main thing stop being the main thing. You see, the main thing is not what or how you sing. The main thing is who you're singing to and about. That's why if we sing a song that you may not like, and you say, you know, Chuck, I don't like that electric guitar, and I don't like the drums, ask yourself this question, are we still singing Jesus music? And we're not, we're in trouble. You say, well, okay, Chuck, I'm with you. But this whole powerful worship thing, I, I I want you to, if there's ever been a tweetable statement, this is it. You ready? We Americans tend to worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. I believe that with all my heart. We Americans tend to worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. In verse 47, they're described as having glad and sincere hearts. The Greek takes that, that, that one little word glad and says it's exuberant, it's overflowing in joy. You see, we ought to come to worship with an excitement like we're invited to the party of the decade, not the reluctance of going to a root canal. Is this why I believe when you come to church, man, it, it, it shouldn't be hard. I, I, the last place you need to be where somebody's going to bark at you and scream at you and tell you everything you don't know or think you already know is church. If ever there's a place you ought to sit down, take a deep breath and say, man, I'm at home here. It ought to be the church. When we say welcome home, that's what we want you to experience. Welcome home. We know you are just as messed up as we are. Come on. I guarantee in this room, there's one commonality among every single person in this room. You ready? We are all hypocrites in our own way. And you say, well, not me, Chuck. Well, you just became one. You see, our, our challenge in life is, is that we just got to get Jesus at the center of who we are, what we do, and why we do it. Where God's spirit leads, there's also something else. There's sincere evangelism. 
I don't mean the kind of evangelism where, 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 you, where you sing until somebody cries, where you, where you bark until somebody comes down an aisle, where, where, you, where you're looking to get a statistic and put a notch in your belt and say, I got another one. I'm not talking about that kind of silliness. I'm talking about a sincere heart that you want people to have the message of Christ and you're willing to share that over the course of time with your life, with your words, with your actions, with your reactions, and you're able to say, in a church where God's spirit leads, I'm a part of other people coming to know Christ. We've got two sweet people getting baptized at 11 o'clock hour. That means over the last three weeks, more than 30 people have been baptized into faith in Christ. And when I look at that, I think that is so beautiful. You know why? Because none of those people were manipulated, forced, threatened, coerced, or emotionalized in any way. They said, this is what I know I need to do to walk with Christ. And I look at that and I think that is so wonderful. Because I don't want to be guilty of birthing spiritual babies and leaving them by dumpsters all over North Gwinnett. Verse 41 says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day by day. You see, when the spirit of God leads, God's people will relate to the world as they should. Let me say that one more time. When the, where the spirit of God is leading, God's people will relate to the world as they should. And the church under the leadership of the spirit of God is is totally committed to teaching, to fellowship, to worship, to evangelism, and they happen naturally, not because we're trying to compete with any other church, but the simple fact that we're so grateful for, for what God has done, for what God is doing, and the trust for what God is yet to do. You see, God was at work through the people there in order to bring people to himself. And so when you think about that, the, the same game plan is in place in 2016. What is God's desire for Sugar Hill Church? When you say, well, you know, we believe the Bible's a big deal. Well, it's more than just a big deal. It's a very big deal. It's a bigger deal than I can communicate. Why? Because what we're wanting to see in this is that do, does the teaching of that give us an encouragement to say, we can do it too. Not just for people who are just really, really good and act really, really good and do all the right things and don't cuss and don't chew and don't go with girls that do. But I mean, I'm, I'm talking about for addicts and cheaters and liars and the rest of us that we can do this. If you're here today and you're saying, Chuck, I have made more mistakes in my life. It is so messed up. There's no way God could call me. That's not what, this is saying the church is filled with those kind of people that God wants to love you so much that where you're at, he's gonna take you as you are and then he'll grow you up from the inside out. That's what the church looks like. But when the church starts looking down its nose, at people that aren't like us, look like us, walk like us, talk like us, or even agree with us, and we look at the world with anything less than love, we've stopped being that church. Our job is not to make a bunch of people look and taste and smell like us. Now think about it. If the goal of that church was to make millions of people more like you, do you believe that is a God-ordained role? Ouch. Because I can tell you, a whole world filled with Chuck would be ugly. That'd be so much selfishness. We would be in one perpetual war. I mean, somebody would have to step up with peace somewhere. I mean, I can kind of see a whole world full of Ben Popes. I kind of get that, you know? 
I mean, look at him. He's together, and you're one of the pretty people, and you, your, your suit is always together. Your tie is perfect. You shine your shoes, and then the rest of the world's like me, like, Ugh. But you look at all this, and you know, Jesus said, all the, y'all, come on. This church is open for you. Let me tell you something, Sugar Hill Church. That's what we're here to do, to say, y'all, come on. Wherever you're at, however you are, come on. We want to remove every obstacle we can to let you come to faith in Jesus. Maybe we don't see more of God because we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, and that's really sharing Jesus. You say, well, why do you pack all those backpacks? I think that's what Jesus would do. Why do you go feed those orphans in Haiti? I think that's what Jesus would do. Why, why does Tripp go down to Lanier High School all the time with, with, with that team? I believe that's what Jesus would do. Why are you playing that hip-hop music out back for those kids to come play ball and hang out in the backyard? I think that's what Jesus would do. Well, why, why, do, you do, why, why do you help those folks who need, need help? And why, What do you do all that for? Because I, I think that's what Jesus would do. See, when the church acts and reacts more like Christ, you can't help but see what he's doing. See, the challenge isn't sound teaching or meaningful relationships. It's not powerful worship. It's, it's not sincere evangel. Those aren't the problems. The problems is that we're not doing those things. But that's what we're called to do. One of the songs we sang earlier was a, uh, was a song that I called How Deep the Father's Love. It was the second song we did. Amy sings it so pretty, and about the time that Corey drops that violin in it, man, it's just got that peaceful feel, that song. I've listened to that song, I don't know how many times this week, in preparation and teaching and writing and reading. So I thought, man, I'd like to see where that old hymn came from. Because I thought, man, this hymn probably goes back like Amazing Grace date. I I found out it was written by a guy by the name of Stuart Townsend. Uh, This is so interesting. He wrote it in 1995. He wrote that song in 1995. And all this time, I thought thought it was an ancient hymn. It was written in 1995. You know why? He had written another song, a highly popular song in Christian circles, sung in churches around the world, and usually sung by like that belting baritone, you know, kind of like opera style kind of song, you know? I mean, the kind of guy that when he walks out, you know, and he takes the mic, you know, he's just going to let it rip. You know what I'm talking about? And is, is that kind of deal. And so Stuart was in a large church, and they were doing this song. And sure enough, that guy is ripping on this song, man, and the band is cranked up. I mean, it's crazy. People around the room are jacked up about it all. And Stuart Townsend sat there weeping because of what his song had become. And he wrote, I never wanted my music to become a performance. I always wanted my music to be a worshipful experience. And he penned that song, How Deep the Father's Love. Vast beyond all measure. And he said, I wanted a song that nobody could ever turn into a performance. Because nothing in that song points to us as anything more than just a wretched soul. You see, the beauty of the first church is they knew they didn't earn it. They knew they didn't deserve it. What they knew is that God had loved them and had given them the presence and the power of his spirit so that they could act and react more like his son, the Lord Jesus. And what I would say to you today, my friend, is... Hear the invitation of the ancient church 
as it says, come to me, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Let's pray. You know, often when we pray, it's a, um, it feels like sometimes it's one of those uh, times we're just trying to segue from a song to a teaching or for a teaching to a moment. But I, I believe in all my heart that, that when we pray, we've opened up this two-way conversation with God. And, and he's saying, that's my kid who I love to talk with. Today, let your prayer be, Lord, I need you. I need you to come into my life and make me new. I need to start over. I need to walk with you. I need to trust in you. My life as it is, Lord, I don't want to, I want to make a U-turn with it. I don't want to live just for me anymore. I want to live for you. And then you can claim, like the scripture says, you can just say, Lord, I need you. And he, he promises to hear and answer your, your prayer regardless of what the challenge is. So today, my friend, let this be your prayer. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Father, take this time and speak truth into our lives. Lord, I pray we'd be more like that first century church. I pray we'd be a church that knows that where the Spirit is leading we have meaningful relationships. We have sound teaching. Lord, what, what we know is when, when the Spirit of the Lord is, is resting upon a church and the church is residing there with you, that God, what we see is this powerful worship experience that happens in our heart, not in a performance. So, Lord, for every person that said today, Lord, I need you to speak into their life and give them the courage to walk and trust you in every way. We pray that in the name of Jesus, our King, our Savior, and our Lord. Amen, amen, and amen. Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. For more information and to find out more about our church, please visit us at sugarhillchurch.com.